Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is from the Sword of the Spirit Bible Conference. This is the question and answer session of Sunday the 19th of February 2012. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis and Brother Brian Beaver. Alright. Which part of the Bible do you not understand? There's a lot of the Bible I don't understand. I can't really pinpoint it to put it on one specific topic. There's a lot I don't understand about it. Uh, but I don't have to understand it all to uh, love God any more or less. So uh, I don't know if that answered the question, but that's the best answer I can give you. Amen. You know, And I guess the thing that we can be thankful for is that we don't have to understand it to have total, absolute, complete confidence in all the world that it's God's word, that he will give us the understanding that we need. And, and you know, that literally, I've, I've said to our church many, many times, you know, <laughs> I don't care how old you get, there's no other book like it in the world because any other book, you can read it, you can dissect it, you can tear it down. Eventually, you'll have learned everything in it. But never the word of God. If you study it and read it your whole lives, that's one of the amazing things. You just go back and... It might be a passage that you've read a hundred times before, but suddenly you see something else that you've not seen before. Revelation chapter 1 verse 3 said, Blessed or happy is the man that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein for the times at hand. So nowhere in that verse it says you have to understand it all. It just says you need to obey it, and you need to read it, and at least hear it. Don't mean you have to understand it. Without oversimplifying... I don't think that it's possible for any man to fully understand the mind of God, to understand why God does some things that he does the way that he does. But the things that we do know about him gives us absolute confidence that we can count on what he does do is going to be right. Amen. But, uh, well, let's see. Now, this one, Matthew chapter 24, verse 34. Don't even have to look it up. They've quoted it for us. Amen. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. How does this fit into a literal interpretation? Well, in context, of course, he's talking about Matthew 24 is speaking of what's going to take place right before the revelation, not the rapture. So, I mean, I think in context, if you want to just look at it contextually and say it's a literal interpretation, generation means a race, um, you know, um, of people. And in context, all these things have to come to pass before the, yeah, before the revelation and glory uh, has nothing to do with the church. Okay, I know a lot of times... They'll take this ta- they'll take this text of scripture and use the, the the where Jesus said there'll be two in the field, one will be taken, the other left. That that has nothing to do with the rapture, all right? Because in context, it's talking about the revelation and glory at the end of the tribulation. So, as far as that, when it says this generation shall not pass, I mean, I look at that as a race, you know. A, a, you know, a kind. Uh, how, how do you feel about that? Yeah, very much. And I, th- I think that, you know, there's possible in context because of who he was talking to there. You certainly find certainly a lot of Bible scholars, which I'm not, 
I believe he's also talking about the nation of Israel there. Uh, and, you know, that's one of the things that we know is, is backed up by other scriptures. Uh, that the, you know, the nation of Israel, I mean, Jerusalem was destroyed 70 years later. But, uh, but the simple truth is, is that uh, the nation of Israel still stands. And uh, the, that was the, the race, the breed, which is what that word literally, literally means there, would not pass away. Until these things come, until the end comes, the nation of Israel is going to stand. Uh, God's people are going to be preserved. And the Bible even teaches us in other places that it's important whether we're standing with them or against them, uh, whether we're going to survive or not. And that's why many of us as Christians uh, are such strong supporters of the fact that, that uh, our nations need to uh, be standing behind God's people, the nation of, of, of Israel. And, uh, Shall, shall not pass is the negative part, side of that. The positive side is preservation. So God's going to preserve that. God's going to preserve all of those things, the generation, until it be fulfilled. That is used there. Uh, and that that word uh, certainly is generally used to describe a, a race or a kind or a, or a breed in a very general term. So I'm not sure. Uh, some further study, I'm not sure where that, uh, where that, that came from. But uh, uh, again, I think that everything, you know, you got you to be careful from the standpoint, you know, when you take God's word, uh, that uh, I can assure you that uh, if it is the inspired word of God, if it is, infallible and inerrant, which we believe with all of our hearts that it is, then if we're reading something that seems to contradict, then I figure I need to do some more studying because God's Word will never, ever, ever contradict itself. If it contradicts in one place, you have a problem having the Word of God as the inspired Word of God anyway. Um, and so, uh, you know, I don't, I don't see, you know, in, in the context, uh, the Olivet Discourse where this is being given here, uh, just before Jesus leaves this world, and, and he's, he is describing the things before his uh, second coming, uh, that uh, he is making a promise here uh, to these people, to this, uh, to this generation, to this race of people, that, uh, uh, that I think is very, very sound and sure that it will not pass away uh, till all these things will fulfill. They will always be. The nation of Israel in some way. Sure, it's been scattered around the world. Sometimes they didn't have their own piece of land. But those people, uh, that race of people, uh, have been preserved, and I believe they will be until the Lord's return. Also, too, Tyler, I guess even if it were to mean a generation, 40-some years, or a race, either way, God is bringing back the people to the land, um, which would fulfill the Palestinian covenant and um, in promising land title, also Abrahamic. Uh, so either way, I look at it as he's gathering his people back, and 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 I I believe we're living in that time. I believe we're living in that generation, if you want to use that word. Yeah, again, and just in in context with that, as some people thought that was specifically speaking, of course, of the. Uh, destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in 70 A.D. But uh, that's impossible with the other things that he said here, the things that would take place uh, because uh, the worldwide preaching of the gospel, the great tribulation period, those things that he's describing haven't taken place. 
And so it would be impossible for it to be speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem in, in, uh, in 70 A.D. Is there free will in heaven? And then underneath that it's got a statement, free will can lead to sin. Well, I'll say this and I'll pass it over quickly. You know, our free wills lead to sin for one reason. That's because of the sinful Adamic nature that is in us. You give us a choice, we're going to make wrong choices, we're going to make sinful choices. Um, But by the time you get to heaven and you've got your glorified body, sin will no longer be a part of you. Uh, Now I know that probably one of the hard things for us to to answer, uh, and one of the hard things to go back, one thing that even as uh, uh, both as a pastor, as a parent, and many things, uh, that we go back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, you know, Adam and Eve were there in the Garden of Eden. Uh, they had a perfect environment. They had a the only the only living human beings that ever had a perfect father. Uh, it was impossible for God to make a stand uh, to commit a sin. Uh, but the reality was because of the choice they had, they're only given one prohibition, and they chose that. They made that choice, uh, and uh, we all know the consequences of that of that choice that uh, that they make. But uh, but I do believe this. I believe that's why that a man left unto himself. Uh, again, Romans chapter three is one of the uh, most graphic illustrations of sinful man that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. Um, man left to himself will have no desire for God, no desire for godly things. If he even had any desire, he wouldn't know which way to go to get there or anything else. And, and, and we know that uh, with our sinful natures, uh, that that's part of us. But with that renewed man, that new man uh, that uh, no sin is a part of, then uh, uh, I don't believe the sin will be part of the question. Panos? That's what that's that was what I that was what I said in the beginning. One of the things that uh, that is very difficult for us to uh, uh, to grasp is that Adam and Eve uh, they were the only ones that had the privilege of living on this earth uh, without sin, uh, without uh, the curse of sin, uh, and they had a choice and they made that choice. Uh, but uh, uh, I believe that with the new man, uh, with the new will that will be God's, uh, there is one other thing that Adam and Eve did not have that you and I have that I don't think we can even begin to understand what it would mean if it was really used to its full extent, and that's the Holy Spirit, God living in us. God couldn't choose wrong. God couldn't choose sin. Uh, We find in the Old Testament that uh, the Holy Spirit of God came upon people uh, to empower them and use them to do specific things for God at specific times. But the great promise to you and I in the New Testament as believers is the Holy Spirit living and dwelling within us, God's very presence. Uh, And uh, I see hands going up everywhere. Uh, Romani? All the arguments which I have with the... Even the angels who saw God and saw the mighty power and everything still have the ability to fall. So even if we are redeemed and we go to heaven and we're in the presence of God, how can you say we can't sin? Well, you're in a glorified body. Adam and Eve weren't glorified. Even though they had a, didn't have a sin nature, they still had a free will. But they're not... They, they didn't have the glorified body and, and angels aren't redeemed either, praise God. We are. <laughs> Angels can't be redeemed. That's why it says in Revelation 19, 1, 
And I heard the voice of, I've heard the voice of much people saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and honor, and power of the Lord our God. We'll be singing that, not the angels. The angels hadn't ever been able to sing that song. Salvation, redemption can't happen to angelic beings. Though they got, a, they had, they've got free will. Even if we, let me ask this question. Even if we have free will when we get to heaven, if we're in a glorified body, you can't make wrong decisions. If you got a free will, it wouldn't matter if you're truly glorified. And the Bible says death is swallowed up in victory because this mortal must put on immortality, this corruptible must put on incorruption. When that happens, when, so then when it happens, death is swallowed up in victory. So if we are in a glorified state, which we, we can only wrap our mind around being like Christ, then I know he was without sin. The glorified body will be with will be incapable, even if it was if it had a free will to choose to do wrong. I mean, you know, I said if. Yeah, no. I never said but, we would. I just said if it had. Could it possibly be that, like you were saying about the Holy Spirit, that essentially we're we're supposed to be married to God in the future? You become one with God. You become. He's a part of you. His divine nature becomes a part of you in a yes. way that it, it wasn't. That's, that's the point I was wanting to come to is no one. There's only ever been one person that walked on the face of the earth, and he had all the choices in the world, but that will have what we will have in our glorified body, and that was Jesus Christ, the only. You, you know, Adam and Eve didn't have that. Um, they were God's creation. They had the choice, uh, but they were not like Christ in the sense that we will be. The angels, nobody else, nobody's ever been redeemed except through Jesus Christ. And if we truly believe uh, that in our glorified state that we are like him, it's not that we don't have choice. You can't take choice away from God, but it is impossible for God to choose sin and to choose wrong. Man has never had that before. He will never have it until that day that we are fully. And in, in Romans chapter, chapter 8, uh, one thing that I've pointed out, which, man, is exciting to me as a Christian and as a preacher, is that when you look at all those things, uh, from, from the called and the justified and, and, and the glorified, they're all past tense. <laughs> you know, as far as with God, it's done. Uh, you don't become a child of God and Him just uh, give up on you partway through. As a child of God, one day, just as sure as there's a God in heaven, you will be glorified. It's a finished work with Him that nothing can change that. And at that point, I, you know, again, we can't, you know, it would be foolish to think that we could under, I'm just saying the only way I get my head about it is the fact is that, uh, is that uh, there's never been, uh, even back to the first man, Adam, they didn't have a glorified body. They had a created body. They were created in the image of God. Once we uh, have that glorified body and are made like Christ, uh, I can only believe that, you know, that's, that's talking, that's, that's all of us, folks. Uh, uh, everything about us will be will be glorified and like Him, uh, and at that point, um, like God, uh, I can't see any possibility that that man. Those angels were not glorified. Adam and Eve were not glorified, but we will be. Praise God. As 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 Tyler said, remember, remember when you talk about what Tyler's talking about that that marriage together as the bride and the groom. What we heard in in the message this morning, the Bible itself. Uh, explains in great detail uh, that 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 welding together of that man and the woman, no longer two but one, uh, and yet that is the exact description that he makes 
us being with Jesus Christ, that we will be as one, no more two, but one as, as husband and wife. I don't, I don't think our minds can ever, ever, I mean, certainly not my simple mind, ever fully grasp that, uh, but I, I, I can uh, understand how that we will be different from, from any angels or any human beings that have ever lived on this earth when we are the redeemed of the Lord Jesus Christ, when as his bride we are married to him, we are made one with him, and in our glorified state we'll be just like him. Amen. Question with A, B, and C. <laughs> okay. Let's just read through it all first, see what, what, how it ties in. Will children be taken in the rapture considering that, A, they might still have the opportunity to be saved during the tribulation, B, if they were taken then the world will be left totally void of any young life. And C, if they are taken, that must also also include babies in the womb. Well, I guess first of all, amen, I guess that uh, this is one thing that with, uh, with, with different man's divisions of denominations over the years, there's certainly been, been disagreement. Um, and you can't go to a chapter and verse, but I believe that when we put all of God's word together on the subject, uh, I believe that children are safe in the arms of Jesus Christ until they come to that age of accountability. I don't believe that's a magic number that at 12 years old or 10 years old, there comes a point in that child's life. Children sin automatically. We've talked about that many times. You don't have to teach a child to sin. There comes a point in his life when he knows that he's doing wrong. He knows that what he's doing is not right, and he becomes accountable for, uh, for his actions. I personally believe that, uh, uh, that when we take all of the Bible in its context, that any child taken prior to uh, that age of accountability uh, is with the Lord, and he's safe with the Lord. Uh, and, uh, and yes, I do believe that when the rapture takes place, that uh, you know, it's going to be. Uh, there's going to be a lot of things going on that uh, that you and I don't know about. I don't think that those children that haven't reached the age of accountability, to, you know, to be quite honest, I never thought. I've never thought in detail about the fact where all those babies going to be raptured out of here. Um, but uh, you know, I don't. I don't believe that uh, uh, that any child is held accountable for their sin until they become old enough to be held accountable. Um, and I believe that there are people, and you've probably met some yourself, that never mentally become accountable for their sin. I believe there are people in, that have genuine mental problems in our institutes. They may live to be 40 or 50 years old, but I believe the Bible gives us enough to know that uh, those people never come to a mental capacity of recognizing uh, sin and being held accountable for it. I guess concerning the last part of that question about the womb, um, you know, if the rapture takes place and a lady's pregnant, um, and she's not saved, then the baby would be taken. It's a life, not at birth, but at conception. Now you hope and pray that a pregnant woman, if the rapture take place, were saved, that that would be the way that you'd want it to go. And the truth of the matter is there'll be a lot of people give birth to babies during the tribulation period. And that baby will have the opportunity because there will be, there will be gospel witness. There will be people, uh, the, the angels uh, themselves are going to come down and proclaim to, you know, get ready. The king is coming. And so they'll have an opportunity. But like he said, whatever you want to use uh, 
term, the age of accountability can can be different with kids. I've known kids that got saved at five because they understood it. But I've known some kids that didn't really get a grasp of it or understand it. They've heard it, but they never understood it. But all of a sudden, they get 10 years of age, 11 years of age, and it hits, and they, they understand it. Okay? So if the rapture takes place and a person has understood, whether they be five or whether they be 85, if they've heard it and understood it and reject it, then the Scripture is very plain about what takes place. And so, you know, you got to look at it this way. I mean, it just that's just the way... In God's providence, it happens. Um, you know, when the rapture takes place, um, there's nothing that you can do to change that event. Prophetically, it's going to happen. Nothing has to happen prophetically for it to happen. Nothing has to be fulfilled for the rapture to take place. So, um, yeah, kids are safe. As long as they're not at the age where they understand somebody, I believe I've answered this question before. You say, well, preacher, can you give me an idea about when it would be? Well, I believe a, I believe an, a kid is accountable when they understand what sin is. And the only illustration I can give is when Adam and Eve sinned and partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their eyes were open and they saw themselves naked. All right? I believe when a kid understands that it ain't right. You know, when my children went from three or four or five years of age and it wasn't nothing for them to run around in a diaper around the house or, uh, you know, in their underwear or just plain absolutely naked, all right? There was a time where they used they said, okay, enough of that. I'm, I'm going to go in my room. I'm going to dress. Don't like anybody seeing me like that. I believe that's close to when they become accountable is when they know that uh, it's kind of embarrassing for somebody to say you're naked, you know? Yes, Rosemary. Yeah, you got to know what sin is in order to get saved because you got to understand that you're a sinner. You, right. Yeah. You don't have to know. I guess I guess the hard thing is, is is the Bible makes all human beings without excuse, and it's hard for us to, to, to develop a lot of these things. But, you know, you could, if, if you carry that to the point, if, if a... If a person was accountable for sin just because they didn't know it was sin, um, then I would say that we we better leave the rest of the world alone. Uh, that's why missionaries go to take them the gospel. That's right. He didn't know he was a sinner, but he didn't know it until God's word came to show him that he was a sinner. Uh, now, there's a sorry. Yes. It does, but what about what about the person that's never taught? What I'm, I'm, I'm what about the person that's never taught, that's never in Sunday school? I mean, if they only become accountable once they're told that it's sin by a Sunday school teacher or or, or parent or whoever, um, I don't think that's when we become accountable. Uh, God's word shows us that we are that we are guilty and that all are guilty and that all are without excuse. That's why that the responsibility that it's upon us to get the gospel message to everyone. There's a lot of things here, guys, and I mean literally, you know, that we could go, and I guess I guess, uh, the one passage that, uh, uh, again, we could go back to Romans, and you can read just, read, just read the first three chapters of Romans. There is no human being alive that is without excuse. Um, if they were, 
then we would be better off to join the, the fatalist that quit sending out missionaries, that quit giving people the gospel, that quit witnessing because they're better off not knowing if by not knowing they're okay. Um, and I believe this with all my heart. Uh, we have to be very, very careful to distinguish ourselves. I, I don't want to be guilty of being dogmatic about something that I'm not certain of. Now, Brother Brian uh, referred to a, uh, to a verse that I was just going to, uh, to read that I believe exactly, exactly what he said about this. Um, that's if there is anybody that is not going to have the opportunity to be saved during the tribulation period, it's those that have already heard and rejected it now. Um, and, of course, we, we find in, in, uh, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, um, when he is talking about the Antichrist coming, uh, and there he's called the wicked, and then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. He will overcome the Antichrist, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Uh, simple truth is, is uh, you know, you're going to be able to look at this man, and without God, uh, people will be fooled into thinking that he is the Christ. Uh, he says, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. There's a lot of people that have this idea that, well, if the rapture takes place and suddenly only people that call themselves Christians are out of here, then I'll know it was true. Then I'll believe it and then I'll do something about it. Um, and I'm just saying, you know, folks, I don't know how God's going to do it all, but I would hate to stake my eternity upon that because without the Holy Spirit, what I see in this passage, without God, without that Holy Spirit there, you're not going to know the difference in the Antichrist and the Christ and what's real and what's not. It's just going to be impossible to know what the difference is. And so I believe that, uh, uh, that those that have not heard the truth, though, that the Holy Spirit will still working with those people. And it's, it's, it's a hard question. I can only, you know, if I had to take a guess, I'd, I'd be right in line with, with Brother Brian there that, uh, you know, if I believe that life begins at conception, uh, that living being. And so uh, I believe that any child that is alive, uh, it will have opportunity. And my most likely thing is they'll be taken in the rapture. I don't know how God's going to do it all, but I know that they'll have opportunity. I know that they'll not, they'll not perish if they've never come to that uh, age of recognizing that what they're doing is uh, is wrong, and, and and according to God's word, there is not a human being alive that is without excuse, whether they have heard or not heard, if they've come to recognize, uh, and that nature itself should tell a person that a a God exists. And I guess in all that, the thing that I see most of all is not so much trying to figure out how in the world God's doing it all, because I don't think I'll ever figure that out. But I know one thing in all that. My responsibility and yours, I believe, that the greatest responsibility that we have in life is to get the gospel truth to every human being we can because there 
is no other hope for them. And that's what it ought to do to us. It ought to drive us to telling everybody we can about the Lord Jesus Christ. And whatever other doctrinal differences and everything that men want to argue over and, and, and discuss and whatnot, we've got to get the gospel to them because there is no hope. There is nobody that's going to heaven except through Jesus Christ. And the only way that's going to happen is because of the gospel. And the only way they can accept that, you know, again, in uh, uh, Romans chapter 8, he asked the very question, how are they going to hear uh, without a preacher? Uh, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. There's no other way to get there. And that should drive us to whether we understand all that God's doing and how he's doing it or not. We need to be taking Jesus to every person that we possibly can. Jesus, yeah. I, I That's good. it is with exactly what you just said is it not that they are working together coming to that age of accountability by teaching and going and telling them is that not the two working together yeah. as I said? Mm -hmm. yes that's that's, that's our that's the you know even as young children we don't know what the magic age is as Christians, whether they're our children or somebody else's, the greatest thing we can do for that child is start teaching them the truth as early an age as, as we can possibly get it to them. Uh, because I don't know when, when he's going to be accountable before God, and I don't want to know. That's between that child and, and God. But I know this, there's only one thing that's, that's going to change his life, and that's the gospel. And we need to get the gospel to him as early as we possibly can. If you had one sermon to listen to, Live from the Bible, which one would you choose? Uh, you know, I was going to say that. I was going to say Mar Hills, but I can't because of who preached it. I love him. Paul's my favorite apostle, but Jesus is my favorite Savior. And I'd probably have to go to Matthew 5. No, excuse me, Matthew 6. I want to hear him preach that message about consider the fowls of the air and Take no thought for your life. Can you imagine? We we hear pre pre preachers say, "Don't worry," and you know what? What do we do when we leave? We leave the sermon. <laughs> we go worry. You know, when you hear God tell you that, it's a little different, isn't it? And I believe I'd want to hear that message he preached uh, uh, about take no thought. Yeah, I agree. I can't. I can't. I can't imagine listening to any sermon that would take the place of uh, of Jesus Himself. And I'd agree too. If it had to be a sermon that uh, that man preached, I'd probably go to Mars Hill, even though that Peter saw a whole lot more saved on the day of Pentecost. I would go to Mars Hill as a man's sermon being used of God uh, because most of the people around us today fit more into the category of them than all those Jews that already knew the Bible, all that they had to that time, and just had to be pointed out that Jesus was that Messiah. Uh, Paul had to go right back to the Creator and, and beginning from the beginning bring them forward. And I think... Not just because it's short. It was a short sermon, too, <laughs> uh, but uh, because of what it covered. As the devil cannot fight God strength to strength, is his plan to make God to fall under his own law. As the devil cannot fight God strength to strength, is his plan to make God to fall under his own law. Well, I'm I'm not sure I'll say this. Maybe maybe Brother Brian understand the question more if you if you're talking about, you know, why the devil is doing what he is if he, you know, I think, you know, the the devil definitely, you know, he's got himself deceived and wants to deceive everybody else. He was right back from the uh from the very start. Um 
but uh, uh, he's definitely doing it under his own. It's not under God's, uh, and uh, he is the great deceiver himself. Does the devil already know his end? Well, he knows what God says his end's going to be, uh, and uh, and you know, I guess I guess uh, I've I've wondered about that question, and in the end. It don't make a whole lot of difference from the standpoint that uh, if he knows what's coming and he honestly believes it, because you see, I mean, the Bible teaches us that, that the devils, the demons themselves believe. They know who Jesus Christ is, uh, but they're not saved uh, because they don't have that faith in his finished work, obviously. But uh, the devil knows what God has written about him. If he believes it, he wants to take everybody he can with him, his self selfish, prideful self and everything that he is. Uh, if not, if he honestly still believes that he can uh, get the upper hand of God in some way, even though God's already spelled it all out and he's falling right into it, then uh, he's not only the great deceiver of everyone else, but he's the most deceived that ever lived. If, if you, okay, um, if you wanted to get at somebody, I'll answer it in a minute. If you wanted to get at somebody and you knew they were much bigger than you, this is just on a human standpoint where we can understand it. If you wanted to get back at somebody and you knew that they could overtake you physically, um, you wouldn't want to pick a fight with somebody like that. But what you would do to get at them was if they had children, you torment and pick at their children. That's the way you get back at somebody. And that's what the devil's doing. See, the devil can't destroy God, but he knows he can do the next best thing, and that is destroy the image of God. It's like when you see a couple on the TV that's had a spat and the person is mad at the other because there's been immorality or something and take a picture of them. Instead of going and destroying them, they'll just burn the picture. That's what the devil's trying to do to God's children. He knows he can't get God, but he can do the next best thing, and that is destroy his children. And that's what he's trying to do. That's his major plan is to get as many people deceived and take them to where he is instead of him going to be with God forever. Does an undescribable law govern God? And did the fall of man put God in a position to cease to be God? I think, I, I think my, my short answer to that would be is the Apostle Paul in no stronger language than God forbid. Uh, no, and you've got, and you got to, yeah, well, we can never understand an all-knowing God, so don't feel lonesome. <laughs> I, think, I think the thing you have to realize is God's plan included salvation before he created man that fell in the garden. It didn't catch God by surprise. That's why the Bible teaches us that his plan to send Jesus Christ was formed before the foundation of the world was ever, was ever laid. God knew that we would make that mistake, yes. God wasn't any less God. Uh, there's so many things that get into this, you know, when you, when you start to, 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 to try to figure out uh, uh, God's love and God's will. You know, the simple fact was that God in his sovereignty, he could have created you in the first place without a choice to where you didn't, it would never enter your mind to, uh, uh, to break his law. Um, he could, could have created you without choice. He could, could have created you as a puppet, as a robot. He could have programmed you to where you never, you could never violate exactly what was programmed in there. But he could not do that and create a being that he could love and be loved in return. Um, you know, it doesn't matter how much you love someone. 
The only way that you can have that relationship is for that love to be returned just as surely. Uh, I used the illustration in the church before that, you know, and when I asked my wife to marry me, I got, you know, I got so confused after a while, I forgot what I was asking because she kept changing her mind so much. Uh, it was yes and no and yes and no, and there were a lot of things there, but the uh, fact is I knew that I loved her with all my heart. Now, I could have just kidnapped her from this great land of Britain and carried her back to a hilltop of the Appalachian Mountains and, and chained her up inside of one of those mountain shacks up there and told her that she was mine because I loved her no matter what. She couldn't go anywhere, you know. And I could have done that because I loved her that much. That's, that's not much of a love, though. And, and the, re the reality is this. If I somehow had this warped imagination that I could love her so much that nobody else was going to have her, that she wasn't going to have any choice in the matter whatsoever or anything else, there could never have been a relationship. She had to have the choice to not love me. There was no way. It had to be a choice that she could return that love. I could love her more than any man ever loved a woman in the world, but it couldn't be there. God had to give us. And, and, and you know, one of the things that's hard for me to get my head around, can we, can we begin to understand? You know, first of all, we can't get to the extreme, to the most positive side. We don't, we've never seen or experienced or felt or begin to understand a love that's not tainted with sin. We only see that in God's love in trying to understand it, but everything we know in life is tainted by sin. The wonder of that we begin to grasp and see, but can we grasp just as surely the opposite of that? Um, I've used the illustration of light and dark. You know, the Bible teaches us that the darkness could not possibly comprehend or, or overtake that, that light. It was an impossibility well, if you've got light and God is all of that light, you have to have a darkness that is beyond anything where your mind will go where that light does not exist because God does not exist there. You know, the reality is, is that without oversimplifying, you know, the, the problem with the world and our choices is not God. It's a lack of God. Um, and, I, and I guess the thing is, Ramani, is that, uh, is that yeah, it's, it's hard to get our hands... God's law, it wasn't something he sat down and, and, and wrote one day because he tried to figure out what was good and what was bad. It is God. It is him. It is who he is. He was letting us know who he is that way that in comparison because there's our sin really is what we are in comparison to him and against his law and against everything that he is. God could not violate that. And when man broke that law, God didn't cease to be God because that his plan was warped. God's plan already included that. His, his, his sovereignty and his own, it already included that. He already planned to send Jesus to do it because he knew he had to give us a choice if he was going to have that relationship of love. We had to have a choice. He knew we were going to make bad choices, but he already put a plan because he loved us so much in place to where our bad choice could be overcome and we could still have that relationship in spite of our sinfulness. Uh, I, I don't know if that's exactly what you're, you're getting at, but. Well, you got keep, keep in mind, God's law is not for God. It's for us. <laughs> it's, it is our boundaries. 
and God, and it gives us to show that we are outside of those boundaries. I don't believe that it's something that uh, that that God made to bind Himself, if you would. I believe that uh, you know He gives us insight into He is holy. His law, when we when we violate His law, we're seeing where we lack in our comparison to His perfect righteous holiness. He's saying, okay, you know, whether it's you know, thou shalt not kill. Um, not because he decided one day it was wrong to kill and that that would bind him and us and everything else. With God, it's impossible to kill. So when, when we look at ourselves in comparison to him, he's given us, well, here's, here's some things where you can see where that you fall short of who I am. Because for God, it's impossible to kill. Therefore, thou shalt not kill. Uh, and therefore, when man does that, and, and you can go right down the line of, of any of the commandments, it's impossible. It's, it's not setting a bounds for God to go in or out of. It's showing God's already there. God's already God. It's showing us where that we do violate who God is and what he is and everything that he is. We could probably carry on for a long, long, long time. The word law right there, the word law, um, in the context of the scriptures, and I don't exactly know what the scripture is he's talking about, but with that word right there, have the meaning, the original meaning, would it mean character instead of bound law? Would it mean God's character instead of more or less what he was asking, breaking his own law? Would that be God's character, not a law? It's his character he can't sin against. Yeah, like God says, he can't, I can't lie. He wouldn't go against himself. But I guess what I was saying is that it's, it wouldn't, he wouldn't be going against a law anyway because it's his character. He's not going to break who he is. It'd be like you asking you to not be who you are. I mean, he, he is a counterfeiter, but just because he were to counterfeit or try to make God look like he has to violate his own law in order to do something for man doesn't change the fact that God's not going to do that. Um, yeah, I know. I understand. I completely understand trying to trying to wrap your mind around the fact of what the devil's what Satan's master plan is. And I've always said this. I think his I think Satan's master plan in man's life is preoccupation and just you don't have to get in no hurry. Just do it whenever you want to do it. You can get right whenever you want to get right. Because, see, I'm convinced that the devil doesn't make anybody doubt their salvation. I've had a lot of people come to me before and say, I believe the devil's making me doubt whether I'm saved or not. I think the devil's greatest lie is for people, he whispers in people's ear and lets them sit in the church and think they're saved for 40 years when they ain't never been saved to begin with. So that's not doubting. That's making somebody think they are when they're not. So you, I don't think the devil's in that. I just um, every time the every time the word, if you look at Psalm one nineteen, every verse either uses statutes, law, precept, you know, and every one of those words doesn't speak of character. It speaks of, I mean, it speaks of his of his word, of his principles. Now there's other places where the word law is used, and I haven't looked that up. Don't really know, but. It could stand for his character. If God is holy, righteous, perfect, pure, etc., 
How can the devil be in the presence of the Lord without being sanctified? This is described in Job 1 1. Well, I'm not sure what the description is. Job 1 1 is there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Now, that's, that's Job and his uprightness. If you talk about verse 6 where he came, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also among them uh, coming into the presence. Well, well, again, I just simply say, of course, being in the presence of God doesn't mean you're sanctified. Everybody's going to be in the stand before God one day and some of them are, are going to be sanctified. Some of them are going to be uh, judged. Uh, just being in the presence of God doesn't mean that you are sanctified because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord one day. But many of those that will stand before a real, a very real God uh, will be facing him for judgment, not for a sanctification. Yeah, he has that. Did the devil have access? He has that power. I mean, he had that that power to have access to it. I mean, if if he didn't have that power, God would have said, "Okay, you can touch him, but don't kill him." He said, "Are you have you not considered my servant Job?" Mm-hmm. So yeah, he had access, but it had nothing to do with him being holy, sanctified, perfect, righteous. Uh, he is the accuser of the brethren. We know that term from the New Testament. He's the accuser of the brethren. He right now has access to go before God and accuse us. No. What? Some people, most people that that aren't saved believe that. A lot of people that are saved believe that. Yeah. But you got to go to James 1 where it says every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So every man... When he sins or he yields to temptation, it's when he's drawn away of his own, O-W-N. That means personal lust and enticed. Gareth? Desire for the forbidden? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They chose. The temptation's there. And everybody in this room's going to be tempted 365, 24-7. Trust me. If Jesus Christ was not exempt from temptation, we won't either. Jesus Christ was tempted in the wilderness, but he did not yield to it. He was yet without sin. Along those lines of what that question is about Satan having access to God and being in the presence of God. I've heard a preacher say one time, Satan has access to God to be in the presence of God, but he cannot go into heaven. That he goes, he cannot, he didn't go all the way into heaven as they're saying go before God. That he had to stay out of heaven. But he could still commune. Is that is that in the scripture? I, th- I, th- I think, yeah, I, again, you know, a lot of pre, pre, pre I don't I don't know that uh, that you can get that specific about a lot of things. It says he went before the Lord. Well, we, we come before the Lord, but not in heaven. Uh, you know, we can have that access. Of course, our access is through the Lord Jesus Christ, who who is in heaven. Um, and uh, and I think you know part of the other thing that uh, I think you were mentioning there is you know is that uh, you know it was God that said, "Have you considered Job?" I mean, here's the guy, man. He's the greatest. He's living a better life than anybody on earth. Hey, old devil, where have you been? Well, I've just been going to and fro in the earth. Have you considered Job? Why did God want to put him on Job's back, you know? And uh, and a lot of people have tried to figure that out, but I think, you know, that there's a lot of things, you know, number one, 
God knew where Job would end up. God knew the blessings that would come. And as far as man's discouragements and facing the things this world throws against him, there's probably not another book in the Bible that's been used uh, for God's people uh, to uh, uh, to bring encouragement uh, more than the book of Job and, 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 and all that he went through and whatnot. Uh, so it was all part of God's plans, and I'm not about to speculate as to, uh, you know, what Man, won't you take the best one down there? You know, he knew the best one would be would be the one that would uh, uh, that would minister to the most people. It was in God's perfect plan. And remember, in the end, uh, Job had far more than he begun with. He he didn't come up with the short end of the stick uh, by by sticking with uh, with the Lord. That's for sure. But, uh, it is often said, "Is this your handwriting again, Romani? I'm gonna put all these blue inks aside." <laughs> it. Uh, it is often said that the KJV. <laughs> it is often said that the KJV is the inspired word of God in English, and there are no mistakes in it. However, many preachers refer back to the Hebrew Greek for better meaning translation. Does that mean that the KJV is inaccurate in translation? Well, a whole lot of things. Number one. Neither one of us would say that, that the King James Bible is the inspired Word of God. Uh, it's the original writings that were breathed in the original languages and whatnot. Uh, there are many of us that still believe that the King James Bible is the preserved Word of God. Uh, you ask the, uh, the, the question here, then why do we refer back? Well, anybody that has ever spoken a, a foreign language, I don't think that they're are mistranslations here that will guide you wrong. And you get into a whole lot of things. Number one, I don't pick a fight with people over what Bibles that they use. Uh, and everybody, I've got, I've got great preacher friends that use different translations. That's between them and God and their people. You know, uh, for, for me, as a person and the choices I make, it, it was an about face for me at one point in my early ministry. Uh, when I had gone to using other versions, and a lot of things happened that brought me back to this in the English language, uh, and I and I do have confidence in it. Uh, people are saved out a lot. I mean, you know, I, I don't I don't want a Bible that's translated by dynamic equivalence, which is the most popular Bibles today, which just means that that Bible's saying to us in English what the original said. I don't want some man deciding that for me. I want the most literal translation. If it's God's word, if it's harder to read, that's fine. Uh, some people say, well, you know, we don't talk with those these and thous and yees and all that anymore, so I don't want them. No, that's because our English language has deteriorated, though. Those things tell us a lot of things, uh, whether it's plural and, and, and singular and all these things that, you know, today's Bibles does it. So it just means I've got a little more information in my English uh, that, was, that was there in the original languages. But you got and, and that's the thing. The action doesn't change, though, what you're being told to repent. If you can understand what's behind that more, uh, then you do so. I often refer to words in the Hebrew and the Greek, not because that it's translated wrong in my Bible. Uh, how many of you have ever used a dictionary before? I hope, hopefully, everybody. How many times have you gone to a definition in a dictionary and found one word? That's it. One word. <laughs> You know, you know, the simple truth is, 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 is often for me anyway, I don't use it because of something that's been given wrong. It's just like many definitions. Matter of fact, for most words, you'll find different definitions. Uh, none of them are wrong, 
but you're trying to give a fuller explanation, a fuller understanding of what is there. And it's like, you know, you may ask me a question, and I can give you one answer or one word, um, but if I take time to explain a bit more, I can give you a, a better understanding of that. And uh, and so, you know, you get into to a whole topic. I believe this, that, uh, you know, we need to respect God's Word, and we need to know that what we have uh, is God's Word, uh, and that what we have is something that we can stake our eternity on. I don't think anybody has to read or understand Greek and Hebrew in order to, uh, to have the Word of God uh, and to have... Uh, the perfect word of God, as we as we would often say in their uh, in their own language, uh, and uh, and I just you know again uh, I can I can get in I've I've, I've taught whole sessions uh, on you know the, the subject of you know of, of Bible translations and things like that. Uh, I would just simply say you know that uh, you know if you've got the Word of God, uh, you need a Bible that you can have total and complete confidence in. Make your own choice. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't want even the people in our church using the Bible that I use just because I do. Uh, I want them to understand why I use that and why they should use it, and 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 to have total and complete confidence in what they are are using, and believe that uh, uh, in my language, with my understanding, that it gives me the greatest greatest uh, picture of what God originally originally said. I don't know many languages other than Greek that have so many articles and different forms, you know, present tense, um, active indicative, you know, you know, uh, plural form, passive voice, imperative mood, everything. It's so in, it's so deep, deep very deep. Yeah, and and it is a lot about the language. But I say this: take looking at the words in their original form, such as Greek, when you know the language, such as Hannah and and uh, Eleni. When you know that original language fluently, when I started, when I took Greek in college, I used to read the New Testament, and it was like looking through. You ever look through a skeleton keyhole in a door, and you can see inside the room, but just very limited on what you can see. Greek is like the key that unlocks the door, and you walk in, and you can see the whole room. It just makes it much more. It takes it from black and white words and turns it into technicolor. Does that make sense? It just livens it up and uh, doesn't mean that. And, and I say it this way. When I use a Greek word and I explain, I'm not, I'm not trying to change or correct the word of God. I'm trying to explain the word of God. Does that make sense? Amen. Okay, we've got two people that ask you very, very similar questions. First of all, how do I discover my spiritual gifts and how do we know what our gifts and uh and again i mean i have i've I've preached and taught serious to our people before on it's i believe that every child of god has spiritual gifts uh, and i believe that they can become apparent in a lot of different ways Uh, and sometimes you know it's things that stand out perfectly to you sometimes it stands out perfectly to others it may be uh, your, your pastor or church elder or something that comes to you that sees a, a particular gifting in your life that uh, they believe it needs to be exercised within, within the body. Um, and, uh, and I believe that uh, the Bible gives us many illustrations of spiritual gifts, but uh, when it comes right down to it, uh, when God places us in the body, we all have specific roles. We all have capabilities 
with the Holy Spirit in our lives that we never had before. Uh, and I think we have to be very careful, first of all, not to, uh, uh, to, to measure the importance of specific ones over others because the Bible teaches us so clearly the importance of, of, of all of these working together uh, that, uh, that the whole uh, be able. And that whatever gift you're using, it's not something to show your spirituality it is actually something to be used for the betterment of the whole. Uh, you don't use it for yourself, you're using it for others, uh, which comes back to most things with God. It's, it's what we're, we've heard this week about being a servant, uh, serving others with our lives rather than what we do for, uh, uh, for ourselves. Uh, but uh, any specific comment there, brother? Yeah, I believe there's... I believe there's two sets of gifts spoken of in the, in the New Testament. One's in Romans 12, which is a very comprehensive look at gifts. And then there's a capsule form um, overview of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. Both of them are totally different. Romans chapter 12 talks of motivational gifts. Those are gifts for today. 1 Corinthians 12 is manifestational gifts which were given to the apostles for the glorification of God and the evidence that God exists and to let people know that God was still in the miracle working business and doing stuff, such things such as that. Those are not for today. Don't have time to go into that. They're just not. You read 1 Corinthians 13, 7 through 11 or 10, you'll see why I say that. Uh, we can talk about that later. Um, but there are man motivational gifts, teaching, exhortation, mercy, giving, prophecy. There's a couple others. But but those are gifts that you can have. And everybody's got at least one, but you may have more than one. All right? So the, 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 the biggest concern I have is not trying to f figure out what gift you have. Is once you've found something you can do, use it, don't abuse it. A lot of people that use their gift in an abusive way in a church and run roughshod over people. Uh, our gifts have been given to us for the unity of the body and the for the help of the body. Okay? So use your gift. Every one of you has got one. And you know what it is. Okay, these it's actually four questions on here that, that goes right along with the with the what our gifts. The first was in Mark Mark three eleven. Why does Jesus not want his identity to be revealed? And of course this was right after healing the multitudes and you know, again, simply there most of us would believe that that God throughout the Word of God uses progressive revelation. Uh, he shows us more and tells us more and more about himself and the things we need to know. And it just wasn't, it wasn't time yet. Uh, God's, God's timing for uh, Jesus Christ and his ministry and when he was to be revealed for who he was, was all in God's timing. Uh, and at that point in time, Jesus himself requested that, uh, uh, well, the, the uh, scripture there said, an unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down, uh, fell down before him and cried, saying, thou art the son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. Uh, he was going to make himself known. Uh, but the time was not right then. Uh, the second one kind of goes along with the whole the whole healing. Mark chapter six verse five. Is it our faith that heals us? Short answer. You can read the read the verse. Short answer is no. It's not our faith that heals us. It's God that heals us. Uh, our faith is the access to it. The Bible teaches us that. Uh, uh, there are many prayers that are not answered, many things that we go through because of a lack of faith. Uh, if we don't believe God, uh, 
What's the verses there in Mark 6, 5? And he could and he could there do no mighty work save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went around the villages teaching. Okay, so 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 in that particular instance, uh, there were obviously a lot, a lot of unbelief, and and he did his uh, his work there. Uh, is it the faith that heals us? Uh, again, uh, there's there's an awful lot of confusion today. Let me just put it this way, folks. You know, God is divine, uh, and I believe in divine healing. Uh, I believe that God can heal anything that's wrong with anybody. Uh, do not believe that it's b- biblical to have divine healers. Uh, those that have that gift that the apostles had to touch someone and heal them. Uh, but I believe it's the prayer of faith uh, that will heal, the Bible teaches. Which one? Uh, okay, James James uh, chapter 5, verse 13. Uh, Is any among you afflicted, let him pray. Is any married, let him sing. If any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if ye have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. I think there's a lot of things there. Number one, that's exactly what we practice in our church. Some people take that literal. Some take it figurative. Um, I've got oil under my pulpit. Uh, we teach our people if they uh, if they have a sickness and they want to be prayed over, uh, they call for the, it says elders, plural, which is exactly what we do. Uh, and I believe that's number one because it's not me that's doing the healing. Uh, and it's not one individual that gets the credit. It is the church of Jesus Christ that he does his work through in the New Testament. He says to come to the leaders of that church. If you've got a problem, if you've got something that's wrong with you and you want to bring it to the Lord, you bring it to the elders, plural, of the church. And there, uh, be anointed with oil and be prayed over. You're showing your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, your faith in the fact that uh, that he's the one that will deal with that for you. Uh, and certainly uh, when, uh, when we do it here, uh, I call for the other spiritual leaders of this church to come and pray with me because I don't want somebody to think that it's my prayer or that it's me, some special thing that I've got, uh, that it's the Lord himself that, uh, that is touching them. When it's the plurality of the leadership of that church, then the glory is Jesus Christ because it's the body of Christ uh, with which they're bringing it to, which ties in, I guess, with the next part of the question here, Mark 12, 22. If we were really, if we were really ill and knew God could heal us, why doesn't he? Uh, you know, why doesn't God heal everybody that's sick? Uh, well, even Jesus didn't do that when he was uh, here on earth. Uh, there's an awful lot of things that we can say there, but uh, uh, but in the end, you know, the we, we know, for example, and some say, well, you know, I hear that flogged about. Well, the Apostle Paul said he prayed three times for his thorn in the flesh to be removed. Why hadn't the Lord not removed it from him? Because he said, well, if he did, I'd just be puffed up with pride and everything else and thinking that I was, you know, something special. God's done this, in other words, to keep me humble. Uh, and uh, and that, might, that might be the reason. It may be for others. I believe that uh, it's hard to describe sometimes that uh, there is absolutely nothing physically that could happen to me or anyone else that I would have total confidence that God could heal and take away if that's the way that he would receive the most glory. Um, sometimes he does do that, uh, but he doesn't always. Uh, God has a plan for your life. He has a plan for the lives around you, and uh, and his plan is the right plan. Um, you know, we live in 
bodies that have been cursed with sin. We're all, we're all susceptible to sickness. We're all susceptible to diseases and things in this life. Yes, he can overcome those and take them away sometimes. And, uh, and I know that in me personally, it does not weaken my faith one bit. Uh, if God does not suddenly take it away, this, I mean, you know, people take it to extremes. You know, I've, I've had people, you know, that, uh, were upset because that I didn't have enough faith because the brakes were out on my car, you know, and that if I had enough faith, my brakes wouldn't be wearing out, you know. Um, you know, there's lots of things, you know. Believe and trust God with everything in your life, whatever it is, and let God have your life to use for His glory. Don't ever doubt God and don't let anybody uh, bring doubt into your life to doubt God and what he can do and what he will do for you. But also don't doubt God just because he doesn't do it your way in your time. You see, he is giving you a glorified body. There will be no more sickness right now. We still live in a sin-cursed world with sin-cursed bodies, and we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. One day we will be on all that. There will be no more sin-cursed body. There will be no more sin-cursed world. We'll be in a glorified body, and we'll never have to face those things again. Right now, uh, you should be willing for God to take and use you however that he can to bring the most glory and to touch the most lives. You know, this, another thing that comes down sometimes is that we see certainly uh, illustrations through Scripture, you know, of, of sometimes the greatest testimony just like with Job, is seeing a person go through the trouble, not being delivered from it. And, uh, and I know some of the greatest testimonies in my life have been to see the faithfulness of others that have stood for God and been with God, even in the most difficult trials, and to see that God was with them and brought them through all of it. Had it just been removed, they would never have touched my life in that way. I don't know how many of you have ever uh, heard uh, Johnny Erickson taught us testimony. Uh, you know, there are many more out there like hers. You know, there she is, a, a paraplegic, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, suddenly, you know, just one accident, you know, suddenly almost everything is snapped away and she can't move anything, you know, from her neck down type thing. And yet, man, if, if, if her testimony doesn't get you back, she knows that she's where she is today because God could never have used her life to touch other people, to minister to other people like he has because of the accident that she had and because of her condition. Her not being miraculously healed, her being crippled, if you would, has allowed her life to be used to touch many, many lives of not only others coming to Christ, but others getting through some really, really, really tough times uh, because of what God's done for her. Uh, and so who knows what God wants to do with your life. Um, but, you know, again, I simply say this. Don't get hopped out there on false stuff, folks, but don't let men take away what God can do in your life and that he is there with you and trust him to get it right. And whatever it is in your life, the good, the bad, and everything else, men, commit it to him. Uh, and, you know, the Bible talks about, I think it was even... Uh, mentioned in talking or preaching one, you know, this week uh, uh, about being content in whatsoever state that we're in. We need to be content if our life is where the Lord wants us. Amen. Why are we not married to the person we marry on earth in heaven? Mark eleven eleven. what was Jesus looking for? Mark eleven eleven. is it wrong to move out of a job if God hasn't told you to move? But also hasn't told you to stay. Well, to answer the latter before the former, if it is, is, is it wrong to move out of a job if God hasn't told you to move but also hasn't told you to stay? 
which the middle road between go and stay would be um, Psalm twenty-seven, fourteen says, wait on the Lord and be of good courage and he'll strengthen your heart. One of the answers God has is wait. If he don't say go, don't go. If he hadn't said if he said if he hadn't said stay, you just wait on the Lord and and let him give you the answer. There's gonna be a lot of people tell you two totally different things. I had one man tell me I ought to go and get a master's, had another man tell me one time, go ahead and go out there and preach, man. Get with it. Well, you know what ultimately I had to do? I had to just wait on God. I had one good two good men telling me two different things. And so I just had to get my answer from Jesus. And so um you know, why are we not married to the person we marry on earth and or marry the person we marry on earth in heaven? And I believe you're right where I was going to go. Yeah. Well, I was I was looking up the Mark 11. Mark 11, 11, you want to answer that one while you're there? I guess what they're saying is uh and Jesus entered Jerusalem and into the temple and when he had looked around about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. So this is when uh, Jesus had come into Jerusalem. I guess the question is, Jesus entered Jerusalem into the temple, and when he had looked around about upon all things, who asked this question? Are they they here? I, I just... Trying to understand you, I guess you just want to know what Jesus was looking around for in the temple. Well, I guess I guess sometimes I might say, well, you know, if, if he's if he's God, why did he have to go in there to look around anyway? He already knew what was going on. Uh, but uh, but the Bible teaches us here that, uh, uh, of course, if you read just just before that, you find that, uh, uh, of course, as he as he entered into uh, to town, and they went before him, and they that followed, crying, saying, "Hosanna! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest!" And then Jesus entered into uh, Jerusalem and into the temple. Um, you know, I guess it's one of those things I, I I can't honestly answer. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what he was looking for, or or why was he was there. It certainly was uh, was not uncommon for uh, uh, the temple uh, to be a place that uh, that he went to. Um, you know, I guess the thing is, is that uh, was was he letting his presence be seen? Was was it more important? You know, it's like the question. Uh, you know, when God asked Adam in the garden, where art thou? Why did he ask him that question? God knew where he was all along. Uh, well, I believe it's so Adam could answer where he was at. You know, God knew where he was, uh, but Adam needed to answer that question so that he knew where he was. I, I don't know what Jesus was specifically looking there because if if I, if I said I'd be speculating because the Bible doesn't tell us there. It does just simply tell us uh, that when he had looked around and upon all things, uh, you know, again, in, in one sense, he, he did that physical act, but God already knew everything that was in there and everything that was in every heart and everything that was there. So why did he go through that, that physical thing? And that's all that it tells us about it. And now the eventide was come, and he went out into Bethany with the twelve. doesn't tell us that he took any action whatsoever or anything else that uh, when he came into Jerusalem, he went into the temple, he looked around at everything that was going on and everything that was in there. Uh, and then he left town and went to to uh, to Bethany. Uh, I, I I can't tell you. I don't know. Uh, you know. Uh, I just know that uh, this this was, if you would, uh, uh, 
Again, his official entry in Jerusalem, what uh, uh, many would refer to as his uh, official presentation, if you would. Uh, and, uh, uh, of course, as he, as he went there, uh, we know that he did this action, but I, I couldn't tell you if there was some deeper intent to it. I, I assume that if there was, that he would have, uh, have told us. And that's, you know, not to make light. I don't think that anything is in God's Word by accident, uh, and that not that it would have been better to have been left out. But by the same token, God doesn't explain every action that he took and why he took it. When he took it, uh, he saw fit to inform us of that. And, and who knows? It's just like any passage. Maybe at some point uh, uh, something would become clear. You know, there, there's things that uh, uh, Brother Brian touched on it a little bit this morning. It was, it was you know, I probably did a, a deeper study into... Uh, uh, Jewish weddings when the the royal wedding took place last year, uh, and I and I preached a message here on a royal wedding, uh, and of course by by doing a, a more in depth study of of Jewish customs and whatnot and all that, there was suddenly scriptures that I had read all my life that came alive to me that meant a lot more than they'd ever meant because of uh, understanding you know uh, why those things were uh, uh, were there. Uh, maybe the Lord will, but I'm you know. Uh, I don't, I don't know of any specific reason. I wish I could tell you if there was one, but I, I, I really don't know. To answer the first question, since we're in Mark, it's in, it's in two of the other Gospels, but uh, Jesus addressed the Sadducees, and they didn't believe in a resurrection, and so he brought out this. He said, for when they shall rise from the dead or be resurrected, they neither marry or, nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. The only answer I can give you is the reason why you're not married in heaven like you're married on earth. God gave marriage to man and that special relationship. And unfortunately, marriage should be in God's eyes like heaven on earth. But many times it's like hell on earth. And that's not the way God, inten that's not the way God intended it. God intended it to be heaven on earth, okay? Here's the, here's the reason why I think, practical reason. First of all, when we go to heaven, we're the bride. He's the groom. So your relationship can't, you wouldn't have the same relationship with your husband or wife here on earth as you would because all, you're going to be this one bride. We'll be married to God. So that's one aspect of it. Second aspect is God is a jealous God. That doesn't mean he's an angry God. Doesn't mean, but he has, you know, there, there's a reason why that relationship was given on this side of heaven and it's not on the other side. Uh, I believe we'll give our full attention to uh, worship and glorifying our, our bridegroom as the bride, uh, but there'll be no need of that. And it's really hard to explain because I know us that are married and those that are going to be. Um, you can't imagine being with the person you're with now and not having that husband-wife relationship, but when you're glorified, it's just going to be amazing. You're, it's it's something that we can't explain. Eyes not heard, you know. Eyes not seen, ear heard, nor neither entered into heart of man what God has prepared for them that love Him. So it is a different uh, relationship once we get to heaven than it is now. You know, I mean, think about it. We're going to see the one that's unseen or has not been seen, and we're going to have full, glorified knowledge of our relationship with God. So that's one of that's basically how I would explain that. You're made up. God, God is tripartite. Okay, that means He's made up of what mind, will, and emotion. God, 
and he showed every one of them in the scripture. Okay, we're pri- we're tripartite. So if the dichotomy, okay, if the the if the opposite of heaven, if if hell is everything we could, you know, that we can't possibly imagine to be that bad, then heaven has to be the absolute opposite of that, and it has to be something that we can't even comprehend how wonderful it would be. Do I think we're going to whistle zippity doo for eternity? You know what I'm saying? I don't know. I don't know. But I will say this. I think about this. All, think about this. All believers are going to be in hell, but all unbelievers are going to be in heaven. Sounds crazy, don't it? You want to know what the first per you know what the first thing that goes through the person's mind when they get to hell? Is I believe now. But when a person gets to heaven, they look around and say, I can't believe this. I know y'all think I'm crazy. I didn't give that to me, God did. When you get when a person dies without Christ and goes to a Christless eternity, they say, I believe it now. I believe what they were telling me now. I believe what God was trying to speak to me about. But when a believer gets to heaven, they're going to go look around and go, I can't believe this. That, yeah, that will be, I believe we both contend that that will be at the great white throne after the judgment of the damned um, because many of us in this room will probably um, watch somebody that we know or somebody that we've witnessed to or a family member be cast into a lake of fire. Remember, hell is not permanent. Hell is temporal. Death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire at the great white throne judgment. See, hell's is temporary. The great, listen, the lake of fire is permanent. So it says there'll be a great goal fixed in between them and us that we can't go to them, they can't come to us. And I believe right after that, Revelation 21, after Revelation 20, verse 15, says, and death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. Revelation 21, it says, John saw a holy city. And then it says, God shall be with them and be their God, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. I don't think there's a person in here, whether you're in a glorified state or not. I can't explain it all. But you, who, who would not weep? Yeah. Who would not weep when you see your own mother? I mean, think about it. If you see your brother... Or your best, one of the best friends you got, though they're lost, you've been trying to witness to them, even a husband or a wife. Can you imagine what a wife or a husband goes through whose spouse is lost and they'd be forever separated? How could you not cry even in a glorified state when you know they're getting ready to be cast into the lake of fire? But God wipe away all tears. And there'll be no more death, nor sorrow, neither crying, neither shall be any more pain. Yeah, I think it's important to realize Jesus was in his glorified body on earth, and he, he wept. And, and boy, a message I have tried so hard to get across here and in the States was the compassion of Jesus. That's one of the greatest missing elements in our churches today. I don't mean it to be crude, but folks, we just don't care enough. We don't hurt enough. When Jesus looked on the multitudes, he had compassion upon them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, he hurt deep down inside. Study out that word compassion a bit. You know, you know. I think it was in one of the sermons again that you mentioned the, the weeping. Why? Because 
That word carries with it a, a, a deep internal hurt. Jesus hurt for those people. Uh, it wasn't just uh, uh, some emotional flippant feeling, you know, that uh, that passed or something. Um, he hurt, and that hurt showed. Um, and uh, so you can hurt in a glorified body, but what is the cause of the hurt? Sin. Sin. It's after all that's cast into the lake of fire. We have that new Jerusalem. And the simple fact is, is the tears will be wiped away. There'll be no more sin to bring that. Uh, we're going to feel a lot. I don't think going to even begin to comprehend what we're going to feel. But I thank God that the things that brings the hurt in our life, stop and think about it. All your sickness, uh, all the all the things that you face in life, everything that you face that's bad, in one way or another, is a consequence of sin entering in in the Garden of Eden. Uh, when sin is removed, then uh, I believe that that sorrow is going to uh, to be gone forever. Uh, I don't know what all emotions we will feel, Rosemary, but uh, uh, but once sin has been dealt with. Then thank God we won't have to uh, to deal with that anymore. When the rapture occurs, what happens to our Bible? Oh, I like this next part. Do they go blank, <laughs> or or does the understanding spirit disappear? <laughs> well, I don't know all this, but I know one thing: the Bible nor the spirit's going anywhere. <laughs> Uh, the the understanding spirit is, of course, the Holy Spirit is the one that gives us understanding, and he's certainly not going anywhere, and God's Word is not going anywhere because it's not only forever settled, but, uh, you know, the, uh, the simple truth is the Bible says that it lasts forever. Uh, it's there forever. It was the Logos, the Word that became flesh and dwelt amongst men. It was the Word that became flesh. Uh, and so... Uh, you know, I guess maybe, maybe, uh, maybe the question: you know, Are we still going to have these physical Bibles, words on a on a page type thing? Um, well, to be quite honest, now I'm, I'm speculating a little bit here. Uh, this is a Larry doctrine. <laughs> I don't believe we'll need words on a page anymore because I believe that everything that's here is going to be imprinted on our hearts, folks. Uh, we're going to be like Jesus. Uh, this is just only a fraction uh, of what's going to be uh, written upon our hearts uh, and there forever. Yes, Elaine. The Bible will still be here during the tribulation period, um, and they'll be preaching. Matter of fact, there's going to be 144,000 Jews, preachers specifically, uh, that's going to be uh, preaching. And... Uh, and people are going to be getting saved. And how else can they get saved except through the truth of God's Word? Uh, I think I understand a little bit what you're saying. You know, if, if we're so there again, remember, everybody doesn't believe that we're out of here for that period. Um, I do. Uh, and if the world's in the state that it's in now, uh, with all of God's children and, and, and all of that that's, that's, that's still here, uh, what's it going to be like when that's when that's all gone? And I don't... I don't even want to think about it. I think that's why that uh, uh, the great tribulation and even just a glimpse of what uh, we saw painted there of all that's uh, that's going to take place. Uh, you know, thank God that we won't be here as His children. But uh, but I do. You know, again, uh, I believe that uh, that during that time that uh, they'll still have the Word of God. 
there'll still be people preaching the Word of God, and uh, and it'll be still God that's that's uh, that's doing the saving for those that uh, that are saved. But I do I do grasp I think a part of what you're saying that you know boy what's it going to be like uh, because uh, uh, when that spirit of understanding is removed. I believe that it will be completely removed for some and those that have heard the truth and don't know it. I believe they're going to be totally gullible to the Antichrist and his falseness and everything that's there because they were the ones that made that choice to reject the truth when they heard it. Not that the truth disappears. Uh, they, they understand and see that truth. How do you study the Bible? What tools can you use to help you understand the context and the meaning of the word and how it applies to you? Well, I'll answer very, very simply and then, and then pass over. I guess, you know, number one, you know, the, the thing that you need to study and understand the Bible more than anything else, and folks, you hear it, but it's not trying to oversimplify uh, prayer. You've got to have the Holy Spirit. He's the only one to give you true understanding. Part of our biggest problem today, not only in Christians, but from many, many, many pulpits. God knows I'll give an account, and I, I have no doubt I'm going to have to answer for some things. I don't claim to be a perfect preacher, a pastor, or anything like that. There's a lot of stuff that's being preached and taught, a lot of stuff that's being put out that simply cannot impossible be based upon the Word of God. Um, everybody says we got the truth, and everything we say is, is, is based on the Bible. Well, I'm saying to you that uh, don't just believe it because they say it. Make them prove it with the Word of God. I might be a simple person. But, you know, one of the very first things, they, they teach you a lot of things in uh, I don't know if any of you have ever been to uh, uh, to Bible college or Bible institutes or anything like that. They teach you all kinds of different things there, but one of the very first simple things that, that they teach you about studying God's Word is when the plain sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense. Uh, don't try to make God say something that He's not saying. Uh, no, I, I, I'm not even going to go there on the doctrine. I, I will say that I had somebody that, that, that worshiped here at this church for a couple of years. Uh, there was a couple of doctrines that we were uh, not on the same track on. Um, there came a point, and, and it all had to do really with, uh, uh, I guess, two very important things, and one is the second coming that we've been looking at all this weekend, uh, and the other was the whole means of salvation and grace and whatnot and how that works. And, and, uh, and in the end, I put forth what I hope was a loving challenge but uh, I ask him a very simple question. If all you had was the Word of God, the Bible, and you read all these things that we've been discussing, you read all these passages in God's Word, and that was all that you had, you had no man's books, no man's understanding, no man's explanations, just God's Word, what in the world would make you come to those kind of conclusions? Because you have come to conclude that many of these things, God said that, but he didn't really mean that because that wasn't meant to be taken literal. God said he was going to do this, and he was going to do it that way, but you can't really believe that, not in today's world, surely. 
And in the end, I tried to love him and pray for him. I tried to take him back, folks. This is the foundation. The first thing you need, you need to prayerfully pray and ask God to give you understanding. The greatest interpreter of the Bible, the Bible itself, if you really believe it to be the inspired word of God, I'm telling you, if you see a contradiction in God's word, there's something you don't understand because God can never contradict himself. Sometimes that's the way of God showing us that, well, I haven't really got that right somehow. There are some simple tools that I would recommend to anyone. Uh, one would be a very good concordance uh, to where that uh, that you can go. I mean, I, I, I personally use Strong's Concordance. Uh, first Bible study tool that I ever bought because it has no man's explanation. It does allow me to take any word in the Bible and find out every word that it's used. And therefore, if I'm trying to understand what God meant by this, well, the first thing I want to know is everything that God said about that word and everywhere that he said it. And a great concordance is something that uh, that you need to be able to do that. Um, I would simply say that uh, when you went to using there's Sure, I have Bible commentaries and Bible dictionaries and all of these things that uh, uh, that I use, um, but you do have to be very careful. And you must also recommend I have, you know, I have certain study Bibles that I recommend for people that have a lot of study notes in there. None of those things are inspired, um, and uh, anything that you go to look at, and you know, we've never had accessibility. There's so many things in our life on the Internet. We've probably never had access to so many different writings and books in our life as what you can go into the, to the Christian bookstore and get. But you need to be very, very careful. Uh, be very careful who you're picking. You know, I, 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 would, I would be very, very hesitant. I mean, if, if I were talking to somebody that was, I don't know who, who wrote this, and if it was somebody that was a member of my congregation, I would be much more inclined to recommend certain specific books, whether they be Bible dictionaries or, or commentaries and things like that. Um, but uh, you know, your your pastor may may have something totally different, uh, and uh, so I'd want to be very careful there. But uh, uh, but I'm saying, you know, stay on your face before God, go to God sincerely and genuinely praying the Holy Spirit to give you understanding. Have something that would simply help you help you see what God's got to say about it in every place that he's got to say it, more importantly. There are some very good things that I think help some of the things we're talking about. You know, I have a lot of books. I don't, I don't speak Hebrew or Greek, uh, but I have many, many, many great works that help me to do word studies and understand words and understand phrases and understand meanings simply because I want a full depth. You've got to be even careful there. Uh, you know, words have specific definitions, uh, but even a lot of the word study books, then they start getting into old man's ideas. Well, this is what it means, but this is what God meant by it. Um, and uh, uh, so take take God's word. Um, you know, when we teach how to study uh, you know, I've taught me, how, you know, the best thing, if, if you're going to study a book of the Bible, you know, read, read the whole book several times. I mean, I used to recommend, you know, just, just take a whole month just reading that same, same book over and over and over. 
in its context and then start breaking it down by chapters and get kind of an overall before you even start going verse by verse and word by word because you can't take and study a word and a verse in its context if you don't know the whole idea of what it's being said about and in. And, and so there's a lot of basic studies like that. But, uh, you know, I love I love books. You can go upstairs and you can see I got, you know, I'd hate to ever have to, boy, if I ever move, I'm going to be in big time trouble. <laughs> but I do, I love them. Um, but, uh, but the first thing, the first thing and the foremost is, is, is God's word itself. Um, a good study tool that will help you to find out what God's got to say about it rather than man. Um, and then there are certainly people that would recommend certain men to read behind and certain men to be I'll answer uh, it with this. I always try to memorize scripture, meditate upon it, um, and don't try to break down a book of the Bible, and don't let the chapters, divisions, and the verse divisions throw you off. It's a letter. So read it like that. Read it like a letter to make a whole lot more sense. All right? That's the biggest thing. And then beg God, beg God to give you to give you wisdom. So, and everybody ought to know this verse. Timothy, Paul told Timothy what? Study to show yourself approved unto God. And the word study means to, it means pick and shovel labor. So it's work. It's just like reading anything else. It's just work. Studying is work. Amen. Just a, maybe a slight word of warning when we approach God's word to study it. All of us think it's the other people that have got biases and not us. <laughs> We've all got certain biases and certain things. We already believe things, and therefore when we begin to read and study, if we're not careful, we try to make it fit what we believe, what we want to believe, rather than what it's saying. And, uh, you yeah, know, I've got biases. You know, people ask me, you know, okay, you know, what uh, What if you'd been raised in a, in a Lutheran home instead of a, a Baptist home or a Mormon home instead of, you know, I don't know where I'd be. <laughs> Because I am everything that's made me up to where I am, and there's all kinds of things that have been taught. But I can honestly say this. Uh, you know, I, I count it a great privilege and a heritage uh, that my dad and both my granddads were, were, were preachers and pastors. I don't think that's why that I'm a preacher. Matter of fact, it was a big struggle to overcome. And I don't, uh, you know, if anything, you know, it, it made me aware that... Uh, I had that heritage, and, and though I may not see everything exactly as they saw it, um, when I come to God's Word, I always pray and ask Him to help me. Uh, I don't want to forget everything and open my mind up just because forget everything that I've ever learned, uh, but I don't want to approach God's Word with uh, uh, with a belief system and try to make His Word fit that belief system. Um, let God say what He needs to say to you. All right, guys, we all had a a bunch of them there, some good ones, and uh, you know a lot of these things could deserve whole university years on, you know, rather than just a, a, a few minutes. But thank God that you're thinking. You know, there's nothing wrong with uh, uh, with asking questions. Uh, there's nothing wrong with not knowing all the answers because if we're honest, none of us do. Uh, but uh, you know, thank you for uh, for your desire to. Uh, at least hear what somebody else's opinion is on some of these things that you're thinking about. And uh, 
and I don't think, hopefully, we don't need to tell you that uh, you know, we're uh, we're not the world's greatest geniuses. Close, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I think we'd agree there. But <laughs> um, and, it's, and and as we said in the very beginning, it's not because we have all the answers, but uh, we love you guys, and that's why we're here. And uh, God forbid uh, that I would ever tell you anything that would lead you astray that I couldn't support by God's word. And hopefully if it's my opinion and not God's, I'll tell you so. Um, and uh, thank you for uh, thank you for trusting our ministry enough to be here and be a part of it. You may come from churches that we don't see everything exactly the same. Um but I don't know anybody that's here that's been here that doesn't come from a from a New Testament church, and uh, uh, thank you for trusting us enough to come. And it, and if you don't agree with us on everything, then that's all right. We don't agree with ourselves on everything. <laughs> I have arguments with myself all the time. Do you really believe that? <laughs> but uh, but Lord bless you.